Okay, if you can finish taking your seats, we'll get the next panel underway. Good morning. Uh, this next panel is entitled Military Force, Counterterrorism, or Provocation. And as such, uh, it constitutes uh, addressing one counterterrorist tool available to us, and that may raise the question, um, why is there a panel on this particular tool and not uh, one devoted solely to other tools, diplomacy, or whatever? And I think my answer to that is, uh, having been involved uh, somewhat in the planning and structuring of this conference, number one, uh, the result, the resort to military force is by its very nature uh, or at least it can be, by, by its very nature, a more consequential and major decision than the application of many of the other counterterrorist tools. And in addition to that, it can have second- and third-order effects that go well beyond whatever is the immediate counterterrorist purpose uh, that is uh, being served, or at least the intent is to serve it. Some of the sorts of questions that this topic raises, and I doubt that we're going to have time to explore all of these in the next hour and a half, but, but this uh, is a range of issues that I hope we get into. Uh, just what are the different ways in which military force can, as well as has been, used in a counterterrorist mode? And my overall observation on that is the range is huge. You know, time was when the main thing one thought of about application of uh, military resources to counterterrorism were the, the, for the classic hostage-type situations, be it a takeover an aircraft or something else. And one thinks back to uh, things like Munich 1972, which in that case was a stimulus to the Germans to uh, develop a hostage rescue force, which was used uh, quite successfully elsewhere in Africa years later. The Israelis, of course, have had that kind of capability for quite some time. And the United States, in large part in response to the failure at Desert One during the Iranian uh, hostage crisis, uh, we've developed our own capability as well. But these days, uh, when we think of um, countering terrorism as countering much more than an ongoing hostage incident, uh, military force in that role has come to mean any of a wide range of things from, uh, on one end, the killing or assassination of a single individual who's targeted, to perhaps the other end of the spectrum, um, invading a country and overthrowing uh, its regime and establishing a new political order, and lots of things in between. Subsidiary question is, are there ways in which military force might be used that hasn't, in which it has not been used in the past? We might think about that. What are the specific purposes that military force serves? And when you start thinking about that, it's not necessarily it serves for counterterrorist purposes. It's not necessarily just the direct kinetic effect on people or material or institutions. Possibly it could be other things that have more to do with the realms of politics and psychology. Um, what particular niche does this tool fill that other counterterrorist tools, be they diplomacy, intelligence, law enforcement, resources, financial controls, or whatever, do not fill as well? 
what are the unique uh, strengths and or weaknesses of military force, and how well historically has military force filled that role? What does the record show? And getting back to the comment about second and third order consequences, what other consequences can flow or historically have flowed from the use of military force in a counterterrorist mode? And in particular, what consequences that might be counterproductive, not only from the standpoint of U.S. interests generally, but even more specifically over the long term to counterterrorism, if, say, it were to encourage or exacerbate extremism or anti-American sentiment that could take the form of, of terrorism. Um, the answers to these and other questions you might think of and my panelists might think of are, are uh, complicated and I'd say difficult for a number of reasons. One is the panoply of different ways in which military force can be used. I think it's very difficult to generalize, or if you do generalize, uh, as someone once said, all generalizations are wrong, including this one. Um, the data set, even though you know, we've got some history to go on here, is in many respects very limited. I mean, take Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. Uh, clearly, in my judgment anyway, a use of military force in the service of counterterrorism. But to what extent was it unique? And uh, does it, it – was it a one-off one kind of thing, or does it represent uh, a larger sort of uh, use that force uh, can be uh, – way, way it can be employed for counterterrorism? And here I'm, I'm getting into some things my, some of my fellow panelists might disagree with. Uh, another reason for difficulty in answering the questions is the unfortunate use in recent years of the war on terror terminology, unfortunate for a number of reasons uh, having to do with things beyond the questions I've just cited, but, but also because it tends to uh, you know, link uh, counterterrorism generally in, in the backs of our minds with the use of military force. It's a semantic kind of confusion. Um, even though you know, it, it may be a metaphor, no, no more specific to military force than war on drugs or war on crime and war on poverty, there is a confusion that in some cases I think has been deliberately fomented. If it's a serious problem, we ought to declare war on it, right? And if we declare war on it, then we, that means using military force, right? Sounds pretty simplistic, but that pseudo-syllogism uh, has, in, has in fact been used. And finally, as a complication, uh, is anytime you talk about the use of military force, whether it's for counterterrorism or anything else, then you immediately engage all, sets, all sorts of ideologies and, um, and preferences that go far beyond counterterrorism, which could range on the one end from a very hardcore assertive nationalism that says, you know, use of military force and throwing our weight around is a good thing, regardless of how we're using it, because it shows um, you know, we've got power to use and we're willing to use it. Two, on the other extreme, uh, hardcore pacifism that says, you know, any kind of military force for whatever purpose uh, is wrong. Those are some of the questions as I see them and some of the difficulties in trying to answer them. And we are fortunate to have a distinguished panel with us. I should note at the outset, for some of you who may have uh, registered when we had a more advanced program, we had hoped also to have uh, Seth Jones of the Rand Corporation with us. But Seth was uh, called off to, um, on a higher priority mission to assist uh, uh, the Marine Corps in uh, an imminent deployment to none other than Afghanistan, and that certainly took priority. Uh, but that leaves us with three very distinguished speakers. I was about to dispense with biographies entirely, saying just look at the bios, but I note to my chagrin that although we have a bi biography of Steve Simon, we do not have ones for Jim Carafano and Dan Byman. So I will just note that in addition to Stephen Simon of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Jim Carafano is the Assistant Director of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum 
Institute, shall we call him Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and a very frequently quoted commentator on a, a large range of security issues, including terrorism and counterterrorism. And finally, Dan Byman, who is my colleague and boss uh, in the Center for Peace and Security Studies at Georgetown University, an extremely prolific scholar whose most recent uh, couple of books are both on terrorism, uh, Deadly Connections, which addresses state sponsorship, and his most recent book, The Five Front War, which is a comprehensive counterterrorist um, strategy. Uh, we will uh, have them uh, speak to you in alphabetical order, starting with Dan, then Jim, and then Steve, before we uh, open it up for questions and discussions. Dan. Thank you, Paul, and thanks very much to, to Cato for having me here. It's a very impressive audience, as well as a very impressive set of speakers, and I'm quite pleased to be joining you. Uh, very briefly, just to get my main points across, uh, direct military strikes on states that sponsor terrorism, direct military strikes on terrorist groups, uh, usually fail, at times even backfire. Uh, as Paul said in the beginning, though, you know, generalizations mislead, and there are some successes. Most of these successes uh, involve a military role in counterinsurgency, a military role in targeted killings, a military role in truly toppling a regime, but even these measures can often have mixed effects or backfire in a number of ways. Uh, depending on the audience, when I speak on this topic, I usually try to understate the role of the military or overstate it. Uh, based on previous panels, I'm getting the impression that I have an audience that's skeptical of the role of the military, so I'll probably overstate its contribution a bit just uh, to be a bit more provocative. Uh, but that said, I should begin by simply saying that the track record in general when military force is used against states uh, is usually pretty poor. Most of these attacks are quite limited, um, often the equivalent of uh, TLAM therapy, where launching a few missiles to um, make uh, the government and the people in general feel, feel proud. But if you look at some of the uh, more prominent events, they've usually had some real problems. Uh, look at 1986, the uh, bombing of Libya. Uh, not only did that, of course, fail to stop Gaddafi from sponsoring terrorism, uh, after that, Gaddafi uh, and Libya blew up several, uh, two airplanes and murdered a number of hostages, and otherwise uh, terrorism spiked after 1986. After 1998, the attacks on Afghanistan, the Taliban became more committed to al-Qaeda. For other countries, experiences also are often negative. Uh, in Israel's case, uh, counterterrorism operations uh, contribute to the escalation of conflicts that ended up in war, and uh, war often has many causes and is extremely complex, but counterterrorism was part of the overall equation. Um, so why does it go so poorly with states? Um, a couple of reasons that, if you think about it, are, are relatively straightforward. Uh, one is that when states sponsor terrorism, the leaders have often thought about the consequences in advance, whether it's economic sanctions or diplomatic isolation or military force. So to a degree, they're prepared to accept a certain response and accept a few cruise missiles launched at their military or intelligence headquarters or whatever it is. It's not a surprise, usually, when this occurs. And for the states, the stakes themselves are often imbalanced, that they see support for terrorism as vital uh, in that they have relatively few other options. Uh, if you look at Pakistan today with regard to India, um, what other options does Pakistan have to prevent Kashmir from being assimilated fully into the Indian Union? It doesn't have economic options, doesn't have diplomatic ones, and it doesn't have conventional military ones. 
support for terrorism has been extremely effective in preventing the assimilation of Kashmir. It's caused a lot of problems as well, but to get Pakistan out of this is going to be difficult because for Pakistan the stakes are considerable. Um, also, the immediate response of most peoples when they're bombed is to rally around the government. So military strikes often, rather than weaken the government, often increase support for it, even when the government is a rather noxious one like Libya's, um, or I would say, if, uh, for future reference, Iran's, where uh, there's nothing quite like uh, a bombing by an adversary to make a government more popular. Um, that said, there are some successes. Uh, one of the biggest successes is what social scientists would say would be a negative observation, things that are not seen. Uh, often state-sponsored terrorist groups are relatively cautious. And in part they're cautious because they fear escalation uh, that will affect their sponsor. And that's very hard to measure. You see a group that only kills 10 people when it has the capabilities to kill 200. But recognizing that differential is extremely important. And if you think about it, there's been, in my opinion, you know, one state that broke that rule and broke it massively, which is the Taliban's Afghanistan and gave al-Qaeda free reign on its soil, and paid for a regime an ultimate price, which is the loss of political control over its territory. Um, and this is another success, which is the use of military forces necessary to prevent an extremely high degree of support for terrorism by states. And if you look at all the problems in Afghanistan today, still from a counterterrorism point of view at least, overthrowing the Taliban was a tremendous success. Could have been much more of a success, but still quite impressive and I would say quite necessary. A third uh, form of success at times comes in the form of targeted killings. Um, I look at the Israeli targeted killing campaign that uh, they began in earnest really 2001, 2002 against Hamas. And extremely impressive from a tactical point of view, combining uh, intelligence uh, and uh, different forms of uh, firepower. And Hamas attacks plummeted. And there are a variety of reasons, and I'm happy to discuss that further in Q&A why this occurred. But part of the reason was that the senior leadership were being killed or had to spend a considerable amount of their time hiding, that they had to devote their time to operational security rather than planning attacks. You had the fragmentation of the group, and a constant demand of Hamas was the stopping of these attacks. There's often a myth that you know, these are groups that seek martyrdom, they're happy to be killed, and so on. It, almost invariably, that's not true. And as a result, it's not surprising that one of the top demands of Hamas is always to stop this sort of uh, campaign. It's worth contrasting that, though, with Israel's efforts to kill various Hezbollah leaders, which were less successful simply in terms of frequency. Uh, but also, if you think of uh, 1992, when they killed Secretary General Moussaoui, uh, the Israeli logic was, you know, this is a bad guy and will impede Hezbollah operations. Uh, he was replaced by arguably the most capable terrorist leader in the world, Hassan Nasrallah. And this is clearly a setback. And in general with Hezbollah, what Israel has done is not killed enough to affect the recruitment cycle, not killed enough to set the group back in any operational way, but at the same time allowed the group to claim martyrs to uh, gain some credibility for this. Now, the reason I'm stressing targeted killing is that the United States has moved in this direction uh, dramatically in the last eight years. This is something, of course, that was done on an extremely wide scale in Iraq, and something that, in my opinion, has not gotten the analytic attention it deserved is the role of the killing of not only top-level but mid-level terrorist leaders in parts of Iraq, uh, but also the United States in recent, year, uh, recent years, excuse me, in recent months, has stepped up this effort in Pakistan 
And there have been media reports that this is a change in strategy, and it's unclear to me. I have no insight into the incoming administration, but this will be a major question on the table for the incoming administration on whether to continue target killings at the same pace. Um, that said, there are some real trade-offs here. Uh, one is that uh, uh, these killings often have uh, quite considerable strategic costs. If you look at uh, in um, – get my dates right here, excuse me. In 2002, Israel killed uh, Salah Shahada, who was uh, a leader of Hamas, had been responsible for a number of attacks, extremely bloody man. Uh, when they killed Salah Shahada, they also killed over a dozen innocent civilians, including several children. The uh, same bomb that killed the bad guy killed a lot of uh, very innocent people. Uh, outraged much of the world. And uh, obviously a tremendous not only moral trade-off, but political one as well. Um, and in the short term, at least, this outrage can generate recruitment for terrorism. I'm, I'm happy to go into Q&A and why I'm skeptical of some of the long-term effects of that. But in the short term, at least, clearly, there is a, a risk of making the situation worse. Now, to move it around a bit, uh, to talk a bit more about groups which I've been doing with targeted killing. Uh, when you go after terrorist groups of military force, several problems. Uh, the first is, of course, in general, it's always better to arrest the terrorist than to kill them. And this isn't a moral statement. This is a statement about gaining intelligence so you can stop the next terrorist. A dead person doesn't provide information, or at least usually not. And if you can arrest them, however, you can uh, learn about Confederates. You can try to learn about future attacks. A lot of information can be gained. Um, it's also going after groups an exceptional intelligence challenge. You're trying to find individuals who are trying to hide and can disperse into a population and are often diff difficult to distinguish among them. Um, the example I always think of is Eric Rudolph, who hid from the FBI in North Carolina for several years. Now, this is territory that is controlled, if you will, by the United States. This is a man who was subject to a massive manhunt. Um, if you compare North Carolina to remote parts of Pakistan, you begin to see the difficulties in going after someone um, who doesn't want to be found. And in general, you need a fairly high degree of surveillance assets and strike assets. And that's something that is extremely costly. And it's costly not only in terms of simply getting the platforms in the air, but extremely manpower intensive. Uh, it's relatively easy for the Israelis to do in a place like Gaza, which is about this big. Uh, but to do it in parts of Pakistan or Iraq is, is much harder. There's a line that the former head of Shin Bet used, which was that um, uh, no Palestinian child draws a picture of, a, of the sky without a helicopter in it. And that's a statement of the level of surveillance, the level of assets that Israel has devoted um, to this issue. And if you try to um, put that in, U in the U.S. context and try to see what the United States would need to do to do similar campaigns um, in much bigger parts of the world, it becomes an extremely expensive and extremely difficult endeavor. Um, it's another obvious point, which is there simply isn't much to hit with terrorists beyond the people. Terrorist training camps tend to be rudimentary. In general, when people talk about degrading the terrorist infrastructure, I'm usually not sure what that means beyond killing terrorists. You know, there's simply not much that they own that can't be replaced relatively easily. Um, take this up beyond the tactical level. Uh, many of these terrorists are actually in friendly states or semi-friendly states. And this also has a degree of legitimation to a movement. It places the movement um, as an object of military force as somewhat as an honorable adversary, as one that you're using um, the language of war, the language of soldiers, and terrorist groups strive for this. If you look at the, the nomenclature of terrorist groups, they, the word army, soldiers, these things show up again and again. 
And it's because they want to be seen as military opponents, and using the military um, has that effect uh, to a degree. Now, I mentioned some of the things that can go wrong. And the most important, I would say, is that when you the military enters the equation, the terrorists start to be able to win by not losing. Uh, I'm not a boxing fan, uh, so I'm going to date myself. But the comparison I always make is if I entered the boxing ring with Mike Tyson, I, I think all of you know the very quick result would be I'd be in the hospital within a few seconds. Uh, if, for some reason, I were able to last a couple rounds, I think you all would be amazed. I would certainly be amazed. Uh, if I were able to last a couple rounds and get a few serious punches in, I think the headline the next day would be Byman beats Tyson, and the subhead might be Byman in hospital still. But nevertheless, the expectation is that I would be devastated. So when terrorist groups can stand up to, in the U.S. case, the most formidable military machine the world has known, it's a remarkable political success for them, even if they lose cadre and even if they suffer. Um, Something to add to this is the role of the military in counterinsurgency. Uh, If you think about the terrorist groups we tend to know by name and care about, you know, groups like the um, Hezbollah, the PKK, the LTTE, the FARC, and I would argue to a degree al-Qaeda, many of these groups either are insurgencies or want to be insurgencies. They also use terrorism. But to see this from a counterterrorism point of view is misleading. You can arrest or kill several dozen people, but that really doesn't do damage to the movement in general. I don't need to tell people in this room the difficulties of counterinsurgency or the problems it causes, um, especially when U.S. forces are directly involved in a foreign country. Uh, but even doing it indirectly through training, through limited support, through special operations forces um, also has some problems. Um, one is that when the United States throws its weight behind a country, the country in general has less incentive to change. If you think of insurgencies as arising due to a series of uh, political and economic frustrations as well as opportunities, then if the United States is backing the government, the need to do reform diminishes considerably. Um, Also, it's very hard for the United States to exert influence over its proxy, which seems strange given the amount of money and effort the United States puts in. But politically at home, to sell support, we have to say this is vital, this is necessary, this is tremendously important. And once we've done that, the government we're trying to aid actually has a high degree of power over us because we've committed ourselves publicly to them And therefore, our ability ability to tell them that we're going to walk away if there's a problem is extremely hard. Okay, so what can be done? Uh, A few thoughts. On counterinsurgency, basically things like peacetime uh, engagement activities, training, mill-to-mill cooperation, these are important. I'm I'm for these. But we should expect limited results from them, not expect that there's going to be significant change. Um, With target killings, recognize that these can work, but that the circumstances in which they work are often limited. At times, they can backfire, and at times, they are ineffective. Uh, Regime change, to me, an extremely important role of the military, is something that should be done only in extremists. It takes something of a massive nature where I think that this is uh, going to be better than the alternatives. And this is really my last point, which is that uh, restraint is often the best policy when it comes to the use of the military. Uh, If you look at Pakistan today, Um, Certainly, there's a whole host of roles for the U.S. military, from counterinsurgency aid to targeted killing to some direct operations. But also keep in the back of your mind, things can easily get worse. Now, given all of Pakistan's problems, that may seem difficult, but unfortunately, the story of the Middle East, the region I've studied for a while, is that you never want to say things can't be worse. 
because they have a habit of getting worse. And this is something that when we think about the role of the military, we need to keep in the back of our minds. Thank you very much. I want to want to make four points. I, I want to first uh, say why I think the uh, subject of this panel is really stupid. Um, then I want to say what I think the debate's really all about. Then I want to say what the dispute really is, and then I want to tell you what I think the real military really should be doing. So those are the four things I'm going to cover. Um, you know, I just start out by saying, you know, I, I, I actually have a dog in this fight. I, I was one of the first people to use the term the long war. I actually you know, thought it was kind of cool when General Abizade picked it up and the president used it in the State of the Union address and they used it in the QDR. And then the Marine Corps wrote a, you know, a doctrine on it and stuff. And uh, I, I was a little freaked when, when bin Laden used it in one of his, you know, videos. But, but, but in fairness to bin Laden, he actually used the term first. It's like you can actually find it in some of his fatwas in, in, the, in the early 1990s. Uh, Perhaps my proudest moment was when the Hask uh, House Armed Services Committee actually banned the use of the term the long war. So when you've been rejected by Congress, there's a few higher accolades than that. Um, so often, uh, and, and Dan didn't do this, which I thought was actually you know, um, quite elegant and, uh, um, and, and very and professional and useful, um, and uh, which is often what this devolves into is kind of a debate uh, between um, we should be using a law enforcement paradigm versus we should be using a military paradigm. Uh, and, you know, I want to start out by saying that I think that's an absolutely ludicrous discussion to have. Um, I think the compassing paradigm structure is actually incredibly illogical. You know, first of all, it's actually it starts with people arguing, well, you, that, that they have this kind of mythical definition of war uh, that, well, you can't have a war against a non-state group. And then they give you all these reasons. Well, it doesn't fit their their textbook definition of war. Many of these people are the same people that, that call the war in Iraq a war. And it, it's essentially the same thing. It's a non-state group fighting a state group. Uh, and then and many of these people are actually in favor of the war in Afghanistan, which is basically a state fighting a non-state group. So there's not a whole lot of rational logic in their definition of war. Um, and, of course, uh, many people who are, want to throw out the term the long war say for, forget the term the global war on terrorism. You ask them, well, should we be fighting a war in Afghanistan events the Taliban? And they say, well, of course we should. Um, and, uh, and, the, and then the third argument, which kind of to me makes absolutely no sense, is, well, you can't use this war rhetoric because it, it offends people, makes people think you're warring on them. And then the enemy, you know, turns it to their advantage. They say, well, we're surviving, right? So we're actually winning this war. Or they're saying, you know, you know you're giving us, uh, you know, psychological tools and propaganda that we can use back against you. But, you know, and, well, guess, well, big deal. I mean, you know, there's no, no instrument of national power is a free lunch. Every instrument of national power in its use is going to produce some unintended consequences and some negative ends. Um, you know, when we declared war on Japan, the immediate action of that was Germany declared war on us. So we doubled our enemies. But I didn't see a lot of people arguing that, you know, responding to Pearl Harbor was a bad idea. And, and certainly if you read the German rhetoric during World War II, the, the, the fact that we were waging war on them was turned in all kinds of ways to inflame the population and, and, and drive them to resist. So this notion that somehow you can frame what you're doing when you're actually going out and trying to stop people from what they want to do, right? And then nobody's going to criticize for you, you for that in any way, shape, or form. That's kind of an illusionary thought. Um, and, and, uh, and then the, I think the fourth reason is, is uh, it, it's ludicrous to deny a war paradigm when the enemy clearly states they are at war with us. And in their conception of, of honor and the defense of their ideas, if you say, well, I'm not at war with you, when essentially what you've told them is you're cowardly and you've actually ceded the battle of ideas to them. So I, I think 
to sit around and debate whether it's a war paradigm or not, to me, is one of the least productive and helpful things to do. So what I think this has really been about is this has been a metaphorical debate, right? It has nothing to do with the reality of what we're actually doing, where, where people sit around, they vociferously debate, no, we should call it a war, and or no, it should be a law enforcement paradigm, because um, the reality is we use all kinds of instruments in this, uh, in, all, in all kinds of different measures. And it's neither, you know, it's, it's not a Manichaean debate, but the rhetorical debate is Manichaean. And the reason why the, the rhetorical debate is Manichaean, because that's the way people wanted it. We immediately, uh, once this became a, a, a controversial political issue, we didn't want gray, right? We wanted black and white. And so the protagonists on both sides had every reason and every desire to frame this in stark choices. You can have security or liberty, but you can't have both, right? You can fight a war or you can do a law enforcement operation, but you can't have both. And so in a sense, they denied the entire uh, uh, kind of rhetorical middle ground where you could have a reasonable discussion. Uh, and, the, and then we adopted, we added into this the whole notion of lawfare, which is, no, 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 it's not about policy choices. Your choices are illegitimate and illegal. So they just denied even to even have a discussion about what's the appropriate issue. Some things were okay and some things weren't, and there was no room for discussion. Um, and, and I think – and we, America, I think actually made this worse because in a sense we threw all the fuel into the fire. And I think this happened both on the, the, the far right on the, and the far left. You know, there was this, this enormous pressure to say everything they're doing is wrong, right? And on the other side, you had you know, far right-wing um, wacko groups who are saying, yes, it really is a war against Islam. They're, you know, and you know, saying, yeah, we, you know, we really are trying to annihilate the Muslim religion. Uh, so, you, so there was plenty of people. There's plenty of ideas to cherry pick, um, in, often in the ways when you have controversial war. And what happens is when you have a controversial war and it's controversial at home, uh, the bad guys over there, the, your critics over there, uh, uh, pick cherry pick the things that reinforce it, the, and they feed that back, and then they turn around and they feed it back to you, and you're saying, oh my God, look what the world is telling us. Well, you're telling the world this, and it's, you've got this kind of cyclical logic going on. So I think largely this whole discussion, outside from maybe a few handful of counterterrorism professionals, has largely been kind of a symbolic rhetorical debate, which doesn't have much to do with reality. I think the only, the only logical reason for a real debate here, and I think what the real issue is, is you know, for the administration, I think they felt that the, the war paradigm was essential because it's the only way they could frame a detention policy, right? Is that they had to find a middle ground uh, between a law paradigm where your paramount interest is the protection of the rights of the individual and ensuring that justice is done, uh, and a military detention paradigm where your paramount interest is the safe and secure detention of lawful combatants uh, until the end of the conflict, and a middle ground in which you want to detain people, prevent prevent them from doing bad things, uh, and gain some uh, information on enemies' intentions and qualifications. And I, and I think there was uh, a legitimate debate to be had that I, I do think there needs to be a legitimate third way in terms of detention between those two paradigms. Uh, but that discussion never really happened because we lapsed into this kind of uh, Manichaean debate. Uh, and so really, in a sense, everything, I think, really boiled down to that one singular issue. Uh, and all the other things that we really talk about are, are really things for discussion, but, they all, but they're all blurred over because uh, this was really the, the central issue and because people wouldn't actually have a rational discussion on this issue uh, and, and actually come to something useful kind of policy. We just, we just, we just argued um, past each other. So, um, you know, so here's what we should be doing, right? And this is what I call my Obama doctrine. Um, and, and I would argue that the, if, if the question is, is what's the appropriate 
use of military force and counterterrorism and homeland security, I think President Obama should step up and say two things. Um, the first thing, he, thing I think he should say is, one, uh, we will use the appropriate instrument of national power for the appropriate task. And two, when we use our instruments of national power, uh, they ought to be used in a synergistic way. They ought to support each other and not compete and contrast and be devoid of actual interaction with each other. And they ought to add up to more than the, than the sum of the parts. So what are the legitimate uh, uses of, of military force in counterterrorism and homeland security? And I've got a list. I'll run down very quickly. Um, one, one I call the 72-hour rule. Uh, yeah, I actually, I don't actually don't think there's a, a role for the federal government and for the military in disaster response in the United States, whether it's against a counterterrorism attack or um, a natural disaster. And I think there are a few exceptions to that, um, other than of course the National Guard, which works for the um, governor. And uh, and the one of the there's a section the, the exceptions I call a 72-hour rule, and that's as you grow the scale of a disaster, and it gets very very large, right? Uh, it's, it, uh, you have two problems. One is the legitimacy of governance, right? I mean, actually, um, some very interesting work on this at the uh, University of Delaware. If you actually look at movies, right, um, you actually ask people how they think people act in disaster. When they describe to you the reaction, what they're actually describing is what they see in Hollywood, right? So everybody grabs a gun. People run panicking through the streets. And actually, m most people actually respond pretty well in the face of a disaster, actually overly calmly. And... Uh, and the, and the, the exceptions to, to that are two. One is you're in a confined space, which is why, you know, people in, you know, party rooms and, you know, in, and, and, and narrow hallways and stadiums always get trampled. And two is when people perceive that governance has failed them. So it's important that there's a perception of governance and legitimacy going on, that people just go out and actually solve most of their problems. And when you have a large-scale disaster, you really have 72 hours to make a difference. You know, everybody knows about the golden hour, right? If you're critically injured, right, you're not treated in an hour, you die, period. Okay. If you survive that hour, you basically have 72 hours, and if you, if you lack for water or shelter, right, you're, you're going to die. Or, or, right. and, uh, and then if you live through that 72 hour, odds are you're going to live. Right? So if you really want to make a difference and save a large amount of people in a big disaster and really ha establish legitimacy, you need to get there in 72 hours. And there I think clearly there is a role for the military in a large-scale disaster, whatever the cause, where you would want to have a, a military component which is integrated with the civilian component that you really would make the difference. And I, I would argue that should be the focus of our military planning. Uh, border security, I, I do think there's a role for the military in the border. I don't think it's in militarizing the border and sending a lot of troops there. I think it's in a very finite constrained way. There are some things that just make sense. Uh, DHS flies um, UAVs on the border. The military's got a lot of expertise in UAVs. They ought to use that. Uh, they do some intelligence analysis on the border. Military's got a lot of skill in how you do intelligence analysis. But I don't think there's actually a very large and robust role for the military uh, in border security. Um, Mumbai, uh, this is one that's uncomfortable. I think we should think about it. Uh, there's almost no contingency plan in the United States to deal with armed people of more than a, a couple, right? Any, if you ever had an armed group, say, of a platoon, you know, 20 or 30 armed people, in this, it would give us fits. Um, we ought to think about that, uh, and we ought to have a plan now, because, um, God forbid, somebody might try to do that someday. And if you ad hoc the response, it's going to look like Waco. Uh, so it would be good to kind of think and plan and train in that. And there's probably some, not, maybe not a large role or even a significant role, but there's probably some role for the military in there, and we ought to think about that. Domestic intelligence, I don't think there's much of a role for the military and domestic intelligence beyond 
the traditional role of the military collecting intelligence in terms of protecting uh, its own physical installation, but a, a broader military domestic intelligence role, um, you know, I don't think is very appropriate. I think what we had pre-9-11 was actually much more adequate. Um, is there a role for interrog- uh, um, interrogation and detention? Sure, because the military is going to pick up people. Um, you know, I think we overstretched post-9-11 in what we thought that was. Uh, I think if, if people who follow that issue see that we've kind of rotated right back to where we started before 9-11, which was probably a good place to be because a lot of the interrogation and detention procedures that the military adopted had been developed over a long period of time and were honed, and it was probably not a good idea to ever go away from them to begin with. Um, there's a role in terms of human terrain, certainly outside the United States for the military in countries like Afghanistan and other places, particularly in areas where you don't have a safe and secure environment and you need to do humanitarian operations, psychological operations, uh, you know, gain intelligence. Um, the, the military's got to do it because it's not a safe place and, and you can't send NGOs and civilians in there. So the military has to have some capacity to do that. Um, j- just two to go. Um, special operations forces, uh, I think uh, – uh, where we went post 9/11, in a sense, conducting using um, special operations forces and uh, special operations command to kind of do a worldwide manhunt was maybe not the best use of manpower or the best strategy. I kind of agree with Dan on a lot of that. Um, you, you, it, you, it ha- if you're going to do uh, global operations, it really needs to be integrated with the operation in the region. It can't just be an independent operation, and it needs to be integrated with everything else you're doing in the region, not just a one-alone standoff of thing. Um, you know, just killing somebody in the absence of a whole bunch of other activities uh, is actually, dance bright, probably not very productive. And uh, the last one I'll uh, make a point for is, is military assistance, uh, which I do think there's a role. And there's, I think there's some actually some good news stories in South Asia in recent years on this. But, again, it, re- it has to be appropriate. It has to be smartly done. There's a number of programs, for example, that we did in Africa post-9-11, which were just dumb, where we went in, in the countries and built them an operations center so they could fuse all their information and, and they were just too polite to mention that, that their constitution actually forbids the, these people from sharing information. But they used it as a very nice rec center. Um, the, the, the last uh, point I'll make before I sit down is um, it, it's not just using the military for the appropriate instruments. It's ensuring that what the military does do is well integrated with the other instruments of national power. And I do think that there's a fruitful discussion to be had in terms of interagency processes and procedures. I think there have been a lot of bitter lessons on that post-9-11 where everybody on the field just wasn't following the same game plan or even knew they were even playing the same game. Uh, There's a lot of recommendations out there on this. Uh, Most of them I totally hate. Um, I I, I would just say two, which I think are the key. One is if you really want to What's more important than anything else, than the wiring diagram, than whether we have an HSC and an NSC or whatever this other junk, the most important thing is if you want people to work together, they have to share trust and confidence, right? And trust and confidence doesn't appear out of thin air. It's constructed over time by building a core of professionals. And there's three things that do that. Um, Education, assignments, and accreditation, right? You have to give somebody an education so they can operate in an interagency community. You have to get them out into the field so they have an opportunity to practice what they preach. And then you have to have a system that accredits both the schools and the assignments and the individuals. And then you build that core of professionals over time, and they take care of most of your problems. And you have to have a doctrine. You have to have a, a common language for people to share. Uh, so because as these problems get bigger, 
decentralized execution is much, much more important. Uh, and uh, so I think, to me, those are the two most important things. I think recommendations that really look towards over-centralization, more consolidation of power, more staff in the White House, more jobs for the NSC, I think are just really, really um, dumb ideas. Uh, but I do think that this interagency piece is important, but I also think it's important um, that we do it right way. And thank you so much, Cato, for having me here. It's been a great opportunity. So. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much uh, to Cato for uh, inviting me, especially to be on a, this extremely stimulating uh, panel. Uh, I, I confess at the outset, I confess <laughs> uh, that uh, I, I don't have a huge amount to add to what's been uh, said. These were uh, superb and, and truly wide-ranging uh, presentations, and um, you know I agree with. Uh, the two punchlines uh, that we've been given, uh, one is that, you know, the military tool is just one instrument among many in dealing with terrorism, and the second, uh, that there's no free lunch, that virtually anything you do, especially if it's um, uh, as, uh, you know, as dramatic uh, and intense as military action is going to have um, uh, repercussions that uh, will hurt or offset to some degree what it was you were trying to accomplish by using military force to begin with. Um, so, uh, you know, coming after these presentations and agreeing with the thrust of both of them, um, I think uh, I will um, content myself with um, just embroidering these beautiful tapestries that have been uh, created for us by uh, these other speakers. And, and I'm going to do so as follows. So the first is just to um, uh, talk for two seconds, really, about where you would actually use military force uh, down the road uh, in the wake of <clears throat> Iraq and setting aside for a moment Afghanistan. Um, and my first uh, impulse is to say, I can't really think of anything, <laughs> um, I, you know, where uh, any, any places where military force would be used as it is in Iraq and Afghanistan, at least by the United States. Um, you know, having said that, there is um, a doctrinal split emerging uh, among jihadists that's worth paying attention to uh, in this regard. And I guess, um, you know, you could frame it in terms of an intergenerational uh, uh, split exemplified on the one hand uh, by the late uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, who um, we remember as, uh, you know, one of the truly bad people uh, we ran up against in Iraq. And Ayman uh, Azwahiri, uh, who is uh, bin Laden's right-hand man, as we know. And, and they have uh, very different approaches. They exemplify different approaches to jihad. And Azwahiri uh, was uh, more of a classic uh, vanguard man. So uh, dramatic, uh, earth-shattering uh, acts of violence would galvanize masses and precipitate some kind of... Uh, um, Islamic revolt, I guess, would be a good way of putting it, or at least one way of putting it. Whereas um, uh, guys like Azarqawi uh, looked at a much more bottom-up 
approach to uh, to jihad. And, you know, for them, taking bits of ground uh, at a time, hard slogging with local um, uh, uh, outbreaks of resistance against uh, the oppressor was really the way to go. Um, this is really sort of a, uh, a take uh, bits of ground and hold it as long as you can and overstretch, cause your enemy to overstretch, that kind of a strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, to the extent that that takes hold, at least in some parts of the world, you could see uh, an, uh, a continuing need for the use of some military force in countering this um, uh, this particular impulse uh, within the broader uh, uh, framework of jihadist thinking and action, for that matter. So, I just I just want to point that out as at least a uh, a theoretical consideration uh, in terms of where the United States might find itself actually on the ground with boots on the ground shooting at uh, at jihadists. Um, the second thing is uh, that. You know, over against uh, the fact that we don't want to make enemies by using force or make more enemies than we already have by using force, uh, if you look at the counter-jihadist narrative from within uh, the Muslim clerical um, uh, uh, trends in Muslim clerical thinking now, the counter-argument often focuses on uh, the Sort of the, I, what's often called the common wheel argument, which is that uh, you, Muslims should not engage in jihad if doing so will derogate uh, from the situation of Muslims. In other words, if, it's, if going on jihad is going to make things worse for Muslims, then you ought not to do it. Then it's not correct to do it. This is called the al-Maslaha argument. And, um, you know, behind it is the sense that uh, by engaging in jihad, Muslims um, are, in fact, uh, uh, being left worse off uh, than they were if they just left the situation alone and waited for a time when the correlation of forces favored uh, armed resistance. So, uh, you know, following on that thought, uh, one would have to concede that there's at least some theoretical merit in pressing uh, this enemy uh, militarily and in other ways as much as as possible. Um, now, you know, on perceptions of Americans using force, I want to talk about movies. Has anybody seen Terminator 2? Probably everybody has. Well, the thing is that, you know, if you're, um, uh, if you're on the other side of the American uh, military machine, America really looks like the bad guys in Terminator 2. And I, I ask you just, uh, I'm, this is a little unorthodox, um, but I, I ask you just to think about the image, okay, especially at the opening of the movie Terminator 2, which is called The Rise of the Machines. And it depicts these enormous, these gargantuan robots, these titanic robots, 
um, uh, crunching their way across demolished cityscapes with these little brave gorillas kind of darting from cover to cover, letting off a few rounds in a futile way against these uh, enormous um, uh, uh, constructions that are coming after them uh, implacably uh, and um, and uh, irresistibly. Well, you know, that's kind of how the U.S. works because if you – the U.S. appears, rather. Let me rephrase that because if you think of the T2 machines and then you think of the picture one sees of uh, an American soldier uh, in full battle gear – uh, especially in an urban context, there is just a little bit of that. And, you know, the other thing that's worth noting about T2 is that, of course, when I watched the movie, I really hated those machines. And I really rooted for the little guys who were running around, um, uh, uh, you know, in this kind of hopeless but incredibly courageous way, trying to battle these machines. And I think um, in uh, much of the world, uh, that's the impression that um, uh, viewers have when they see the American machine um, uh, going after its enemies, uh, for no doubt very good reasons. But nevertheless, this is how, you know, we're perceived. And there is a real cost to that. Um, And I think that uh, one of my colleagues here was completely right, um, Professor Carafano, in saying that there isn't any free lunch uh, and we should expect to carry costs, uh, but we need to be weighing these costs carefully, and sometimes uh, these costs will be uh, necessary and unavoidable, and sometimes maybe uh, they aren't. Uh, in In a related vein, uh, the uh, instructions that we got and that are included in the description of, uh, of this session of the conference point to the ways in which uh, the use of military force might have hurt prospects for the kind of cooperation that we need um, in counterterrorism. And setting aside the, the I guess, the PR issues, uh, there has been a cost to some of the things that the United States has done in terms of cooperation, but I'm not sure that they exist primarily in the military domain. Uh, and perhaps Paul can speak to this um, uh, more authoritatively, but uh, my impression is that the U.S. reliance on certain intelligence tools, especially rendition um, uh, and uh, detention policies and the alleged use of torture um, were more damaging uh, to cooperation on the part of states, uh, on the part of governments on whose cooperation we normally rely uh, than, um, than what we were doing strictly militarily. Uh, lastly, there's the issue of, um, so when we use the military, uh, does it work? And I agree with the speakers that the record is a bit mixed. Um, but I have to say that at least in Pakistan, <clears throat> that is to say in the frontier areas of Pakistan where uh, the U.S. is using uh, missile attacks <clears throat> to kill al-Qaeda leaders, it actually seems to be working 
pretty well. Now, this is a case in which um, military action and uh, intelligence collection and direction are very closely intertwined and where the U.S. has learned um, uh, to apply force uh, very, very precisely. And, um, you know, perhaps that's a lesson for, you know, how and where uh, these things uh, work. In bigger urban contexts, you know, I think you just get into really messy situations. And the Israeli operations in Gaza and their operations uh, several years ago in Jenin are good examples, as is uh, the example of um, U.S. military operations in certain uh, uh, stages in the Iraq conflict, particularly when uh, we were fighting in Fallujah. Uh, just as an example. Lastly, um, you know, my sense is that the center of gravity of the uh, of this war on terrorism is shifting uh, to uh, cities, and it's shifting to cities in uh, Europe and uh, the densely populated areas of the Middle East and South Asia. And it's very difficult to see military force having any utility. Uh, in these contexts. Uh, there, uh, we're looking at uh, law enforcement and intelligence, and even where um, firepower is concerned, uh, the best way to approach that, and perhaps the only way to approach that, is through uh, you know special weapons and tactics teams that are within a law enforcement framework. Thanks a lot. Thank you to all of our panelists. We have uh, a bit over a half hour uh, remaining until the lunch period for questions and discussion. Uh, so we're going to open it up. I believe there's a microphone that uh, is traveling around. And uh, when you get recognized and get the microphone, would you please uh, identify yourself and uh, your affiliation? The first hand I saw up was right over here. And also, if you're directing your question to a particular panelist, please say so. If not, uh, just leave it open. Uh, this is to the entire panel. Uh, my name is Joel Bradman, National Defense University at College for International Security Affairs. Uh, could the panel please speak to the uh, use of military force in the sense of it as a multifaceted instrument, uh, using it in a political sense, a diplomatic sense, psychological intel, uh, what other, other uh, facets it may carry, say, in context of you know Europe or uh, any other situations in the Middle East. Thank you. Anyone want to uh, address any aspect I'll, I'll of that, Jim? Well, you, know, you know, I would say as a paradigm for thinking about that, that it's um, you should start with thinking primarily of the military as a, as a, as a tool of doing traditional military tasks. Uh, and that should be the absolute primary focus uh, and as you start to add ancillary missions for which the military might be appropriate, that you do a really thoughtful cost-benefit analysis there. Uh, and uh, so, one, so you're not kind of draining away from, from the military's core mission and capabilities and what you're, the one thing nobody else can do. And, two, because as you push them in other areas, that you're, that you're using them efficaciously. And I'll, and I'll just give a good example. Um, one of the things the military has done more of, and, and more in recent years, and, 
and not even that they've done more of it, but it's got a lot more attention, is the military's role in providing humanitarian assistance. And there are a lot of NGOs who are very upset about this, and they don't like this at all because, A, this is my space, dude, and, B, when you start doing humanitarian assistance – the, the the parties of the conflict start to get confused about what's the difference between you and me and if you're that you're an okay target and I'm not and so that starts to make me a target and so there are a lot of NGOs that are really against the whole idea of the military humanitarian assistance but the truth is there is there are scenarios where there, there are not many choices in, in a high combat zone where there's an enormous need for humanitarian assistance right? It, it, it kind of makes sense that the military provides that because they can both provide the assistance and defend themselves. Uh, it gets really murky when you start to get to a place which is kind of moderately violent, right? Um, and then the, the notion that somehow NGOs and the military are going to work seamlessly side by side is ridiculous because they don't share common interests and goals. Uh, and, and what you really need there is a, a, a doctrinal solution which really provides common space for kind of everybody to kind of do – what their main mission is, and maybe not coordinate with each other, even cooperate with each other, but at least not conflict with each other. And then, and then of course, you go into situations where you have a very permissive environment, and there's probably military, you know, arguably doesn't have much of a role there at all. Uh, so, uh, so I would say the two things I think are really paramount. One is once you start to get away from the core military missions, you, you need to have a very vigorous cost-benefit analysis of why you're doing this. And and two. It gets back to what we really need to kind of think through the doctrinal piece so we have different people in a space trying to do good uh, that we can accentuate their capabilities and, and not have them competing with each other or hurting each other's interests. Anything else on this one? Let's go to another question in this room. Um, Chris. Chris Preble with Cato. Okay, Jim, I'll take the bait. Um, you invoke the analogy of um, declaring war on uh, Japan after the attack on Pearl Harbor, which then invoked a declaration of war on us by Germany. Now, while I concede that the psychological impact of the Pearl Harbor attack and the 9-11 attack might be similar, do you really think it wise, and obviously you do because you invoke the analogy, do you really think it wise to equate the threat posed by Osama bin Laden with the threat posed by uh, Imperial J Japan and Nazi Germany? And let me finish, because the alternative to that frame is rather than equating Osama bin Laden to uh, Tojo and Hitler is the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed image, image which is of him in his wife beater T-shirt looking like Jim Belushi at 2 o'clock in the morning. And in my mind, that's a much more compelling and ultimately powerful uh, uh, rhetorical tool for us than equating them with the leaders of large industrial states that are capable of, of unleashing uh, violence that can kill hundreds of thousands of people. Thanks. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the, I, mean I, I don't see much of a problem here. I mean, the... the Clearly, bin Laden and Taliban owned terrain, right? Uh, terrain which allowed them to operate, and the only way you're going to stop operating them is you took that terrain away from them. So I, I really don't see the problem there. And, and, and my glib answer is it's an interesting bit of relevant debate because at this point, who really cares? Because all that's in the past, and all that really matters is what's going forward. And, you know, to me, the war paradigm in, in many ways at this point is really quite strained uh, in, in, in virtually every part of the world with the, with the possible exception of Afghanistan, 
and Pakistan, where you have bad people that, in a sense, own terrain. And nobody's and that's not to say that this can only end in a victory parade or or in a scorched earth thing. I mean, there may actually be a negotiated diplomatic settlement in the end with the Taliban uh, and some kind of surrender from bin Laden. But but this is a problem of people owning terrain and you trying to take away from them. So for me, the, the war paradigm in the Afghanistan, Pakistan area still works. And and I would actually, if I was advising uh, the administration, I would say, look, let's narrow the use of the war paradigm to that one theater. And because it really isn't, I don't, I don't think I need at this point for a global war paradigm. I just don't think if you if you thought it made sense in 2003, I don't think it makes sense uh, in 2009. Uh, and and so if we could agree that the war paradigm just um, st- is foc- is relevant in that one theater. I, I'd be happy, and and I think if if after we clean out the sanctuaries in uh, or somebody cleans out the sanctuaries in Pakistan or or they become peaceful, that we could declare an end to this war and we could all go on with our lives. So just to, if, to clarify, Jim, because in your earlier comments uh, uh, you mentioned uh, well one of the reasons to re- refer to a war on terror is uh, well that's the way the guys on the other side are referring to it. To which the the response would seem to be: uh, Do we let the the bad guys set the terms of debate, and do we elevate some of them into the status of something greater than they really are? Now I'm hearing you say uh, control of terrain is a is a decisive distinction. And if they if they do control terrain, then we treat them on the same plane as a state. But all the other guys, let's dispense. Well, with I mean, I, I mean, war, I, I, war paradigm. You know, I you know, I don't I don't think we're elevating them. I mean, they control terrain. They have, I mean, you know. I mean, I'm talking about the guys who don't control terrain. Well, I, 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 I you know, like groups in Somalia or something like that. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily you need, or I don't think you need necessarily a war paradigm to, to deal with the groups in Somalia or deal with Hamas and Hezbollah in Latin America or a host of all, whole other transnational terrorist issues. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I think I saw this gentleman, uh, yes, in the tan uh, jacket. Ed Desishir, University of Maryland. You raised um, the specter of a um, uh, large number of uh, insurgents, if you will, in in United States and the difficulties that would present for us. And then your uh, seatmate there uh, raised the similar, same uh, prospect in uh, northern European cities and perhaps Middle Eastern cities. I didn't quite understand all of that, but... Um, Presumably those countries have the same problem that we would have of using military force within their same uh, within their own countries. Um, uh, do you see that um, actually happening in um, the UK or Germany or France or what have you? Steve, you want to? Uh, I don't see an insurgency per se, you know, in any of these places. But there are um, cells and networks that have already carried out attacks in European cities that um, uh, are a serious security issue uh, from the perspective of those countries themselves and from my perspective as an outside observer. Uh, This is not a threat, however, that's susceptible to some sort of military cure. I mean, you know, Russia's had them twice, right? And they screwed up both times. Well, three times, actually, and they screwed up all three times. Um, uh, Indians had Mumbai, and and they kind of screwed that up. 
I, I, I don't think that it, it's necessarily the, the most likely threat in a Western European country. I certainly don't think it's a very likely threat in the United States. Um, the, the only reason why I say it's something worth thinking about because um, you, it's the kind of threat that if it ever does happen, you kind of want to get it right the first time because the, the, uh, um, the aftermath of that just is not pretty. And if you want just a good analogy is look at what we did in the riots in the 1990s in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, there, was a, there was a lot of good use of military force there. Uh, and there was a lot of stupid things done too. So I, I think there's um, uh, there's an awful lot that could be done at very little cost, and, and with just some thought and training. Uh, that would, if God forbid anything like that ever that continuously ever did happen, you know, we could save a lot of lives, and we could all not look dumb in responding to this. And uh, of course, the the best you know you you can't stop a terrorist attack that started, but a, a really good effective response to a terrorist attack is certainly a, a deterrent to a future terrorist attack, right? Uh, in the interest of equity, let, let me take one of the questions that's been handed to me from uh, one of the other rooms. And I should say almost all of these are for Jim Carafano. But, uh, he's, he's the one who stirred things up. But here, here's something that, that you, did, you did address briefly, Jim, but maybe some of the others uh, would like to comment as well or you might want to elaborate. As the sideshow on the Mexico-U.S. border increases daily, at what point do we use military force vice the Border Patrol? Has this uh, terrorism been overlooked? What should our counterterrorism strategy be? So uh, – yeah, I just U.S. Mexican border. I just say very quickly. I mean, this is a problem that, that primarily requires a much better security solution in Mexico. Um, much like you know, we're never going to win the war in Afghanistan because the the war is really in Pakistan. And until the Pakistanis win it, we don't win it. Um, I don't think there's a, there's a, 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 a vicious cycle of trade on on people, arms, drugs, and uh, money. Uh, the money and the arms go south. The drugs and the people come north. Uh, and this is a very lucrative trade, and there are people who are fighting over possession of the trade and then uh, fighting over le- legitimate governance in the area so they can move that trade freely. And it is getting an increasingly difficult physical security situation. But I think the answer really is not in more of a U.S. military response. It's much in a much more effective Mexican law enforcement response uh, and partially a, a military response. And so things like the Merit Initiative I think are very important, and they should be more than that. But um, the, the U.S. military I don't think is the answer to the border wars. At all, uh, I'll chime in here just to point out uh, we actually have a huge bureaucratic gap in the U.S. government, which is the training of foreign heavy police and paramilitary forces. Uh, if you look at who is tasked to do this throughout the government, the answer is everyone and no one. Uh, a bit of the role is in the Department of Defense. A bit of it is at the, in the intelligence community. Some is at DOJ. Some is at Department of State. Uh, but no one likes this mission. And it often falls upon the military uh, because bureaucratically they're the best able to manage programs and have more resources to throw at it. But the military tends to train police as very cheap light infantry, which is actually a very bad way to use police. It uh, takes – it almost destroys a lot of their natural advantages. And what we need for the Mexican border and, frankly, in a number of other situations is police but not police similar to U.S. police forces. We need police that are much more akin to a gendarmerie. And we simply don't have that bureaucratic function in the U.S. government, and every bureaucracy that tries to do it, um, its leaders run away from it as fast as they can. And that, to me, is something that uh, more effective leadership um, at senior levels could give us that capability or at least improve it. Let's try to get a question toward the back. Uh, the gentleman in the far back left, I think I saw your hand first. Yeah, back 
Uh, thank you. Reggie Gillis from uh, U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, kind of following the, your comment just now, um, a lot of the panel discussion is about has been about the impacts or effects of uh, kinetic actions. However, the, the department really, its, its primary focus, not just for special operations forces, but military force in general, in its decisive role, it says, is to uh, what we call building partnership capacity and doing some of the things that you just discussed. And part of that uh, controversial part is often they're not military forces that you would uh, work with in other nations. Uh, care to comment on that role and uh, the possibility of, of having success and putting most of its effort there in the future? Okay, Jim got into that a little bit uh, in earlier comments, but does anyone want to... Uh Expand on that topic. I'll chime in as well. Um, as you know, much better than I am sure, uh, there's been an ongoing debate in the soft community about the role of uh, training foreign forces, the traditional soft role, and uh, kind of the door kicker mission of direct action. Uh, I'm someone who's pretty heavily in favor of the training mission as being the primary mission of special operations forces. Uh, the old idea of um, these forces as force multipliers, training local forces, using them. Um, not only with their indigenous capabilities, but making them better adjuncts to U.S. power, uh, to me is a tremendously valuable role, and one I'd like to see more attention given to, um, even at the expense of the door kicker mission. Uh, this also requires a certain degree of political realism um, of, among the part of the American political community, uh, in particular on the issues of uh, human rights. We're training forces that are often elite forces locally, who are naturally enough often regime protection forces. So you're going to get into the issue, which is some of the people you train are going to be involved in quite nasty political action on behalf of a bunch of very unpleasant regimes. If you're not comfortable with that mission, don't do it. But don't go in thinking that the bland assurance of a foreign ministry official that this won't happen is somehow going to insulate you from this problem, problem two or three down, uh, years down the road. Um, I'm actually in favor of this mission for the most part. I think the professionalism benefits that accrue locally um, outweigh some of the human rights implications. But the trade-off is there and quite real. Uh, the last one I'm for. Um, I actually have a paper coming out on this in a couple of weeks and, and arguing that we need to kind of rethink our traditional security assistance programs, which I, I agree everything Dan said, but I don't think many of them allow us to do the kind of things that that he talked about in terms of training gendarmerie, in terms of more thoughtful security training, and even in terms of, of better human rights oversight. You know, for, so traditional military assistance programs don't get you. And some of the security assistance programs, I mean, things are just nutty. Like, we well, have a helicopter, and you can use it to trace a drug runner, but you can't use it to, tra you know, to run down a terrorist, right? Uh, so, um, and, and we're actually thinking of something more akin to something like aligning the Millennium Challenge account, where in a sense you would have a pool of money you would have partners who could, in a sense, compete for that money, and they could put together, you know, what they believe their needs are, uh, and uh, and then you could award the money to countries that are both have the most efficacious programs, and also are the ones that that you think are uh, going to be useful to you. And maybe it should be something that's not uh, that is, uh, you know, has a combination of state defense and homeland security. Uh, involved into it. So I do think there's a lot of thought that could be done in this area to make our instruments much, much more effective to do the kind of things that, that uh, Nan talked about. Let's look for a question that in the far other rear corner. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, we're on. Okay. Yes, my name is Lee Dutter. I'm with Barry University in Miami, Florida. 
And I had a question about uh, an issue that relates to the last panel yesterday as well as to this panel. And let me preface that with a couple of quick comments. Uh, one issue that's been uh, of a subtext here has to do, of course, with weapons of mass destruction, nuclear proliferation, state-supported terrorism, and the possibility that a terrorist group could acquire uh, one of those types of weapons from a state, either by stealing it or being given it or buying it. And uh, no one has mentioned Iran. And I will avoid movie analogies and also analogies with bad paraphrases of old songs by geriatric rock groups. But ask the question or ask the uh, make the statement that an iconoclastic wag might make, the only thing worse than war with Iran is war with Iran. And I'd be interested in any reactions that any members of the panel might have to that kind of a statement or to the situation with Iran in general as uh, president-elect and soon-to-be President Obama has to deal with it in his uh, early stages in office. Well, inviting commentary on that, I'm going to ask the panel panelists to uh, sort of focus on the specific terrorist dimension, if any of it. Um, Steve, do you have a comment? Well, <clears throat> I don't think that uh, going to war with Iran is probably the most efficient way to deal with its uh, terrorist capacities. Um, uh, we, we might be in for interesting times, uh, however. Uh, looking back at the, um, I guess, mid-'90s, uh, the U.S. was um, very much focused on a number of Iranian uh, threats that still persist and that form the basis of um, current U.S. concerns about Iran. And um, we had at that time several initiatives uh, that were designed to weaken the Iranian regime. Uh, one was the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act, which was passed uh, in the mid-'90s. Uh, there was an appropriation uh, to fund regime change-related activities uh, in Iran, and the U.S. Uh, was very um, vigorous at that point in its attempt to get uh, friends and allies to sign up to uh, sanctions-related um, uh, initiatives vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Well, uh, at that point, Iran was coming uh, to feel as though somehow it was under a lot of pressure from the United States. And uh, there followed a kind of cat-and-mouse game where uh, the Iranians were looking for U.S. Uh, vulnerabilities uh, at, in, in, uh, in an attempt which they ultimately carried out to attack the United States uh, using their terrorist capacities in order to deter um, uh, further efforts by the United States to pressure the regime. Uh, ultimately, they snapped one off at Kobar um, after this long period of cat-and-mouse um, activities uh, with the United States, uh, covert cat-and-mouse activities. Uh, looking down the road, uh, we might see uh, an Iranian regime uh, that sees its interests served uh, by uh, this sort of response to the kind of pressures that the United States, at least thus far, has been bringing to bear on Iran. I have no idea what uh, President-elect Obama's policies on Iran are going to be or not going to be, so I can't speak to that. 
Um, but uh, it is just worth noting that historically, uh, Iran has uh, responded to this sort of pressure um, uh, using violence. Yeah, um, just on the – I do think the issue of WMD and the response to WMD is a bit overblown and overreaching. Certainly, you, 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 you can't argue that nobody would ever try this. Amshan Rikio did. They spent a lot of money trying. They just had really stupid scientists, right? Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, a lot of these scenarios are, are, are kind of work in Tom Clancy novels, but, but not in reality. I, I think there are probably some common sense things that we could all agree on that, that might make sense. Proliferation security initiative, I think, is one of them. Not letting people traffic in materials and technologies and weapons probably a good idea. Certainly a role for the military there. Uh, but on the other on, – on the whole, I would say, as a, as a matter of counterterrorism strategy, I think this is emblematic of kind of the, the exactly the wrong strategy, which is to fixate on what what's in your hand. Is it a car bomb or a letter bomb, right? Is it a WMD or a, a suicide bomber? And I think that's a, a really flawed strategy to focus on the 1% of the terrorist attack that's different, right? Uh, and ignore where the big payoff is, which is in foca- focusing on the 99% of the terrorist attack that's the same. There's an organization. There's a network. There's training. There's logistics. There's uh, intelligence gathering. There's rehearsing. Uh, all the telltale signs of a terrorist conspiracy, which don't look horribly, awfully, terribly different you know, for pretty much all the different threats. So I think the, the focus counterterrorism really needs to be on going after the terrorist conspiracy and the network. That needs to be the bulk of your investment and your response. And, and, and our investments at the, at, the, at the far end of whether you're worried about you know, somebody dropping a bomb in the metro station or whether you're worried about somebody smuggling a nuclear weapon in their FedEx Christmas package, uh, I think we ought to be really careful and cautious about what investments we put on that end. Thank you. I'm going to um, refer to a question, again, that came from one of the other rooms. Although it's addressed specifically to Jim, I think it's fair game for any of our panelists to um, comment on. It concerns Afghanistan. Mr. Obama plans to place many thousands of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. His goal is presumably not regime change there. What is his goal, and is it worthy? Using Afghanistan as a base for regime change in Pakistan, question mark? Why not use more U.S. military and other U.S. instruments of national power for regime change in Latin America while we're at it? Well, let me kind of um, generalize and rephrase the question, but focus it back on Afghanistan. And the basic question is, what is the mission in Afghanistan of use of military force, and to what extent is that a mission having to do these days with terrorism? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Um, I think there are a number of missions that you could – uh, identify. I mean, the various uh, political leaders involved, and especially military leaders, have tried to identify some. But I tend to see most of these in the category of stop things from getting worse. If you look at the various governance indicators in Afghanistan, uh, it was always pretty depressing, but it's even more so. And we've actually, in part, this is a, a lesson to all of us to pay attention to the indicators and statistics, because a lot of the statistics gathered several years ago were quite flawed and understated some of the problems there. Uh, so the hope is that more troops will act to provide uh, stability where none exists. And I think most importantly initially, um, try to stop the bleeding in terms of governance in much of the country. Uh, the big difference, though, between Afghanistan and Iraq, as, as U.S. military leaders are, are more than aware, is the existence of a massive haven across the border in Pakistan. And that fundamentally changes the nature of the insurgency. It makes it much harder to fight, much harder to decapitate, much harder to strike at its logistics networks. We can go on and on. That's a fundamental shift. The problem is Pakistan is where good policy options go to die. 
I mean, I have, I have the advantage over most people uh, in that as a professor, I can sit there and make fun of any policy option that comes up on Pakistan and tell you why it's not going to work. Uh, yet we still have to have a policy. And as a result, we're going to have a policy that's flawed at best. And the hope to me is that at the very least it has some long-term hope, even if the short term is rather dismal. And that's going to require strengthening the government to a degree so it can enforce order, trying to push it against the insurgency. And there are enough reasons, I think, logically and strategically, that the Pakistani government should move in that direction. But frankly, it hasn't. And this is always going to be a problem in Afghanistan until we can solve this border issue. Okay. Let's take a question right here. Fourth row. Well, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, this gentleman, two rows first, and then, then you'll be next. Abdali from Afghanistan um, and also from uh, representing NDU. Hold the microphone uh, toward your mouth. Please. Thank you. Um, for, I, I would like to just, uh, compliment the panel for uh, opposing this over-militarization of our effort against terrorism. Example of Afghanistan, uh, after seven years of efforts, we are still in the phase of kill capture, and we have not really moved to nation building. A very uh, clear example of how we are too much into this uh, over-militarization. We're actually training the police, which job is actually law enforcement, training for a purpose to fight terrorists in Afghanistan, still today. So uh, I really uh, support this, uh, that we should oppose this over-militarization of efforts and go really to nation-building. But of course, there's a utility of use, but not, not in, in all cases. Okay, thank you. Um, Question just two rows behind, yes. David Ritker's uh, Cato Institute, and this is uh, addressed to uh, Mr. Carafano, but anyone else is free to weigh in. Uh, you mentioned the lack of a third way between military and law enforcement paradigms as an unfortunate uh, result of the war on terror debate, but uh, hasn't a detention policy in Guantanamo been that third way? And hasn't that been a colossal failure? And uh, while I generally agree with you uh, that neither the military nor the law enforcement paradigm is adequate to encompass everything uh, in fighting lawfare, aren't we better served by taking each particular facet or issue and sort of forcefully uh, putting it into the appropriate paradigm? Uh, and, and, I mean, don't third ways generally invite lawfare and see the initiative and propaganda uh, value to it? Uh well, you know, I will, I, I will certainly say that I do think that the administration's detention policy has been a colossal failure. I, I hate when people use the word Guantanamo and detention policy interchangeably as if they're exactly the same thing. I mean, I don't know about the early days of Guantanamo because I wasn't there, but I have been to Guantanamo a number of times over the years. And, you know, and you, you can dispute the legal proceedings, uh, what do you think or not, but the men and women that run Guantanamo are in the U.S. military. They run the medical facilities. They run the detention facilities. They run the interrogation facilities. I think they're among the finest detention facilities in the world. I think the care there is certainly far better than any U.S. federal prison. It's probably better than 99 of the detention facilities worldwide. I think they do a terrific job, and, and I think we do them a disservice when we interchangeably talk about when we use Guantanamo as kind of short change for rendition and torture and everything else. So, so I, I think we ought to kind of separate those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with Guantanamo, personally. I mean, it's a, it's a great detention facility. It's a great medical facility. And uh, it's a great place to do legal proceedings. But, you know, but I, I do think we've done tremendous violence to uh, detention policy. And I think one of the unintended consequences, for example, is we've actually, we're actually undermining 
the legitimate combat detention because of this debate. And so rather than kind of fix the problem, we, we, took, the, we took the two things that were in a problem, law enforcement and military detention, and we've actually made them worse, right? So now we've, we've gotten more habeas corpus on the battlefield where it clearly doesn't belong. Um, and and that's, a, that's a negative and unintended consequence of this. And on the flip side of that is we've made detention so difficult and problematic now that we're actually creating incentives to just go out and kill people. Don't detain them because if you detain them, interrogate them, you're going to wind up in all kinds of problems. Just kill the guy, which, of course, as Dan pointed out, is the last thing you want to do. You don't want him to become a martyr, and you certainly want all less intelligence value. But when you're making it so hard to actually detain somebody, it's like, well, let's just whack them, right? So this is this this is a we're all we're all sitting around, you know, applauding and cheering that we're going to close Guantanamo Bay. Well, great, wonderful. That doesn't solve anything. It doesn't address any of the detention issues. It, geography is not the problem. And we, we're not solving the problem. And, and the way we're trying to solve the problem is to actually make having a criminal trial for terrorists harder and more complicated and a disservice to everybody and lawfully detaining combat, uh, combatants uh, more difficult and a disservice to everybody rather than sitting and figure out what do we do with people who may not have committed a crime yet, may be operating in a very difficult environment where it's difficult to actually gain valid law enforcement information, but we want to detain them so they can't hurt somebody, and we want to make sure we get intelligence from them that we might need. On the other hand, we want to allow them some measure of due process because every human being is entitled to that, and we certainly want to make sure they're not tortured and they're treated in a humanitarian manner. So rather than kind of crafting that third way, we sit around here and applaud closing Guantanamo as if, We've made some real stride forward, and the answer is we haven't. We're actually moving backwards by continuing to avoid the real issue. If we've got a quick question, maybe one more before we have to adjourn. Um, yes, sir. Right there. Thanks. Uh, Damian Jones, Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, for you, uh, Professor Carafano, real quick, you mentioned building a core of professionals, and you referenced education, assignments, and accreditation. My question is, based on the military, they have individuals, and by percentage, they allow to go to schools and develop themselves for the military for broader purposes. The IA, the broad IA, cannot do that. So my question, based on manpower, how do you see a way to make them more integrated into that process to make it really, truly a unity of action versus um, sporadic training? Just very briefly, I, I think there are a way to do capacity-building models in the other agencies, so they have the capacity to both do training and to support national security missions. I, I did an article on this in Joint Force Quarterly, so I'll just refer you to that. It's kind of the short answer. We are out of time. Um, Chris, do we have any announcements that we need to make uh, uh, sure. before we uh, say words that will start people sure. moving out of their seats? Uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> thanks, to, uh, thanks to the um, panelists. Thanks to Paul for chairing. Okay, so uh, we have uh, until 1 o'clock or so uh, for lunch, uh, same as uh, for those of you who were here yesterday, same model. Uh, I ask that you please return to your seats uh, around 1 o'clock so that we can all be seated and ready to go at 1.15 for Paul Slovic's speech, which will be immediately followed by our next panel. Um, and uh, please uh, make your way to lunch. Thank you very much. And please join me in thanking the panelists. <laughs>